Matthew 28, 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray that prayer. We pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I don't know if you all can tell from here or see the bags under my eyes, but I've not slept great this week. Nor is the microphone. It's a good thing I don't wear a lapel mic and you can't hear my heart or anything like that. Um, Georgia has resigned herself to being a baseball widow for the next week or so. Um, I can't really believe what I'm watching or listening to um, And it raises a philosophical question. How do you assemble a winning team? How many of you have ever had to do a group project in school or at work, right? Okay, I've been, yeah, all right. How did that go for you? No? Group projects are notoriously miserable affairs, are they not? Uh, And to prepare you for that, they make you do it in school because you're going to have to deal with it in life at some point. So they do that so you can experience this real-life soul-crushing frustration in advance. And Grace has been assigned to do several of these at L-Tri-C already this semester, and so the stories have been rolling in about the way that goes, you know. And uh, one joke she shared with me, uh, I think she saw online, about asking your group members to be your pallbearers one day so they can let you down one last time. (laughs) Groups are notoriously hard to work with. Teams are hard to work with. And it's because it spreads the responsibility too thin, right? Um, And the blame for failure is also diluted when you think of it that way, right? Uh, And parenting teaches this as well. I mean, I don't know how many of you parents here have ever struggled to get your kids to do anything, anything at any point. Yeah. Stupid question. I already know the answer to that. It's baked into the cake. This is what parenting is. Um, But there are good ways and bad ways of motivating your children. And uh, I have a bad habit as a dad. Well, actually, I have several bad habits. But one of those habits that I'd like to mention, you know, this morning is uh, I have a tendency to assign a task to all of the kids in big blanket statements, usually in a loud voice, to demonstrate my frustration and the importance of this task. And when I do that, all of the kids look guilty. They have rehearsed that face, they know. And then, uh, typically, none of them does anything. uh, Because I didn't name a specific child, nothing actually happens. And this is a reflection of a broader principle in personnel management that Reverend Green is often fond of reminding me of. He says you should always assign decisions to a committee, but you assign jobs to individuals. And uh, that's how delegation works. And it tells you what a good manager and listener I am that I had to ask David by text earlier this week to repeat this again before I added it to my sermon (laughs) because I still couldn't remember it. 
Uh, Reverend Green also frequently tells me that every job needs a job description because you can't measure how well anyone is doing if expectations are not clear, right? So, yeah, delegation largely means knowing what job needs to be done and then figuring out who's best suited to that job. Do they have the necessary skills and knowledge and ability to do this right and then getting them to do it? Well, today we're we're beginning a a mini-series It will be short. It's not going to be like we've done here uh, with the Sermon on the Mount. We're doing a mini-series on the Great Commission, uh, which is basically the scene where Jesus, uh, on his way to the Father's right hand, delegates the future of the church into the hands of a committee, a group. It's almost like he never took a leadership class from Reverend Green. But on the other hand, he does give a very clear job description, right? It's, It's short and sweet. Uh, He doesn't give a lengthy lecture the way I do with the kids too often. Uh, He says everything they need to know in just a couple of verses. Uh, And the Great Commission is the climax of Matthew's gospel. It's probably the most memorable ending of any of the gospel accounts. He's giving the disciples this final pep talk and a reason to keep going. And that's helpful because it would seem like the purpose of their ministry as his disciples so far, right, has been to kind of follow Jesus around and watch him do stuff and to help out here and there as he instructs them. And now that he's leaving them, they're, they're going to need a sense of direction. Like, what do we do now? Uh, one might even say that they need a new vision and mission. So I think that's an entirely fitting thing that we jump ahead to this passage because we happen to be in a season as a church where we are pursuing this new vision and mission. But in some sense... We, we always remember that the churches, you know, capital C church, their overall mission has not changed from the day Jesus spoke these words that we saw recorded here in Matthew 28. Uh, there's a reason why we cited this passage in the new vision that we prepared, because the new mission and vision for LVPC is really designed to help us better fulfill the original mission and vision of the church. The mission hasn't really changed in its essence, just in the circumstances, right? So we have inherited these orders from the original disciples. And the Great Commission is Jesus' appeal to his disciples to go and be fruitful, right? The mission is for the disciples to go make more disciples. And it actually echoes the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. True discipleship means multiplication. There's no way around it. There is a reason that Jesus is constantly using illustrations of plants, or he talks about leaven. You know, the church is something that grows. It expands. But this passage is also fitting for us because it's the other bookend of Jesus' earthly ministry. You know, we're skipping all these exciting events that happened in between. Uh, We just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount last week, and I I think that there's an obvious connection point, maybe several, between the Sermon on the Mount and the Great Commission. Uh, We said several times that the Sermon on the Mount is essentially like a handbook on discipleship. You know, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be his disciple? And that sermon, which was Jesus' first recorded sermon of his public ministry, it came right on the heels of him calling the first disciples. We talked about that passage in chapter 4. If you go back in your memory or sermon notes, if you keep them, you may recall that they were not originally even called disciples. That's not the word that Matthew used in the, in the account when he was first calling people in chapter 4. It's not till chapter 5, verse 1, when Matthew says that they came and they sat on the mountain At his feet, when they came to hear him teach, that's when he calls them disciples. So the disciples are those who follow Jesus and listen to him. They sit at his feet and he teaches them. True disciples listen to Jesus and they obey him. 
And part of obeying him means they must reproduce. And here at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's going to command his disciples to go out and make more disciples, even as he must physically leave them. Now, I decided a while back that I, I think we're going, to, we're going to take a couple weeks on the Great Commission because this is our job description. It's our mission and vision as the universal church. And when there is no vision, the people perish. And without a job description, morale plummets because nobody knows what they're doing. So the Great Commission is really a gift from Jesus to his people. But there are three facets of the Great Commission that I want to look at in, in detail over these next couple weeks. In, in this scene, we have the, the team, and then we have the captain, and then we have the command itself. And today I want to look specifically at the team, the disciples themselves, because these are our spiritual forefathers, right? And in this scene, we are watching the sort of founding fathers of the church, as it were, and, and everything we do Everything we say, everything we do today as Christians kind of begins with what these guys were commanded on that mountaintop. What we as the church do starts with what Jesus told these guys to do. So what can we learn as we look at them? Well, let's think about it. Who, who are these guys, right? Uh, the passage itself doesn't tell us much about the background. We know that what we're looking at right now in this scene is what remains of the twelve, Right? Uh, the reason Matthew skips introductions is that he expects that we have read the rest of the book, but for now, we, we did cheat and skip 20 chapters to get here. But I'm assuming you're all familiar with the 12 disciples, right? Uh, you've heard of them. Of course, Jesus never said that they were the disciples, as in the only disciples. We just tend to call them that because they were so particularly close to him. Uh, and you, you understand the idea of who they were. Maybe you get the names mixed up. I think that's true of all of us, right? But you get the idea. Jesus had many disciples during his earthly ministry, but 12 who were close. And it makes sense, right? How many close friends can you have, really, right? Even Jesus in his humanity couldn't be tight with everyone, so he had these 12 besties he's hanging out with, right? And I want to skim some highlights to remind you of who these guys are, right? Uh, when we started the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we hadn't met all these guys yet. In chapter 4, we were told that Jesus had kind of just went out and grabbed four fishermen, right? And he kind of pressed them into service. And it was Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were called away from their nets. They obeyed. Uh, but he apparently padded those numbers later after the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we don't get a background story for all 12 of them. But Matthew records how he came to follow Jesus. And he records that a little later in chapter 9. Uh, he says that, it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, i.e. the twelve, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So you see kind of right away in the accounts that we do have of how he calls these guys, uh, that he doesn't make them clean up their act, right? He, he, he didn't make Matthew earn anything or, or straighten himself out first before he came. He calls him, and then he goes right to his house, and I think all of these guys had a similar experience. Right here in this well-known passage about Matthew, we learn some basic premises that even Jesus' closest disciples, it's true of, right? We learn that his closest disciples 
are sinners. But that Jesus called them anyway. And that's true because Jesus always picks his friends. They don't choose him. None of these stories start with how some guy just sought out Jesus on a whim. Every one of them was chosen by Jesus, seemingly arbitrarily, and usually while they were working and busy. Jesus forces them to walk away from their livelihoods like mid-shift without explaining anything to a supervisor. But he doesn't just call them to a life of service, right? He calls them to a life of fellowship with him. He eats with them, and he counts them as friends. And he even immediately, immediately is sticking up for them when people start giving them grief. So when you read at the end of the book of Matthew about these 11, you have to remember where they come from. They're not just working-class Galileans, right? They're, They're all sinners called by Jesus who have become his friends. It's not just a number. And we get a foreshadowing of this final scene all the way back at the end of chapter 9, shortly after Matthew gets called, and it kind of pours over into chapter 10. We get an introduction to all 12 of these guys, and Jesus explains why he called them. At the end of chapter 9 and verse 35, he says, it says, Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we learn that early on that these twelve men were also called apostles, including Judas. And we also learned why Jesus called them. Why? Because he had compassion on the broken people around him. And because he wanted more laborers for the harvest. The main description of the uh, job description for the apostles was to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To go do what Jesus was already doing because the harvest is too big for one man. Jesus in his humanity, could not touch all the sick or personally proclaim the kingdom to every ear in the world. There was physically just not enough of Jesus to go around. So he calls his friends in to help. He deputizes a posse to give him a hand. And again, they are his hand-chosen team. None of them are there by accident. He picked them. So... When we get to the Great Commission, the Great Commission doesn't come in a vacuum. Uh, This was their job from the earliest days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And one would think that after all they've been through, right, all they've seen, all the stuff we skipped in those 20 chapters, that these disciples would be amped up and ready to go for this, right? Uh, They've been with Jesus on multiple mountaintops before this, literally and figuratively, right? Uh, They have had a front row seat for everything Jesus has been doing since the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, That means an awful lot of healings, an awful lot of exorcisms, miraculous feedings, right? 
And not just the miracles, it's the up-close compassion that only Jesus could possibly display, the love he shows, the compassion of a man who knows everything about you but loves you perfectly anyway. These disciples heard all of the parables the first time they were spoken, and moreover, they even got a private interpretation sometimes afterwards, right? Uh, They've seen him walk on water and command the weather to calm down. It was Charles Dudley Warner, a friend of Mark Twain's, who once said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, Jesus did something about it. There are climate scientists who are convinced that we have the power to control weather in the future by burning less fuel or whatever, but I doubt they're envisioning exactly what Jesus did. This is a little extreme, right? These disciples were there at the triumphal entry. They have seen Jesus at the heights of ministry and popularity. They had eaten Passover with the Passover lamb himself. They saw him transfigured on the mountaintop. They saw him die, and now they see him alive. In short, they have seen up close the power of God. But what condition do we find them in here, in this final chapter, this final section? Of Matthew. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I think it's impossible to overstate kind of how shocking that kind of is because I just gave a, a bird's eye view, right? We're just saying, like, everything these disciples, these apostles have seen and experienced. And here we are in this final mountaintop scene with Jesus, and the first thing that stands out to me about this crew is their weakness. The first thing you notice right away is the number. Eleven. Doesn't have quite the right ring, does it? And it's the first time we've seen them referred to in that way, because obviously something changed, and it was a recent change. Judas, a trusted member of the team, thought to be pretty good with money, um, who had, like them, preached and done miracles in Jesus' name, had driven out demons and everything else, and he had turned out to be a traitor. And the vilest kind of traitor who would sell out his friend and Lord for a few pieces of silver. Now, Scripture doesn't give a, a full accounting of Judas's motives. Satan had a direct hand in it, right? And we could speculate all day on why he turned on Jesus. Like, money, would, it would seem like, would have to be a secondary thing, like an extra perk, right? What, what was it? Disillusionment? Some secret sin struggle? Political disappointment? Some deep embedded anger, resentment? We don't really know. I suspect that, like many betrayals, it probably seemed kind of just senseless and completely out of the blue to the other disciples. Think of how the church, even today, will spend years trying to pick up the pieces after a hidden scandal suddenly gets exposed, right? Think of someone famous like Ravi Zacharias, right? Have any of us fully come to terms with this discovery that he was a wolf, I think it's easier in some ways as time passes to condemn someone years later when you've had time to kind of fully digest what happened here and the weight of what happened, the weight of what they did, right? But I wonder if at this point, so early in the game, the disciples are still in disbelief. 
Because you have to remember that Judas was a friend. This is a guy that they've lived with for three years. And when the betrayal happened, it happened quietly, right? No one had an open quarrel with the guy or anything like that. He just kind of went out that night, right? And later they find out, oh, he, was, he hung himself. Like, what? So I, I feel like even in that simple little phrase here at the beginning of this uh, passage, that, that simple phrase, the 11, that's like a loaded term. There's a lot of pain and confusion behind that number. Who can you trust if we can't even trust each other? And then Matthew says also, yes, that they, they worshipped Jesus, but some of them doubted. Even now, Jesus is standing here in the flesh, and yet some doubted. I can't help but wonder if it's a subtle confession, because after all, Matthew was there, right? Matthew doesn't say what they doubted exactly. The context seems to indicate that they doubt the truth of the resurrection, but I bet there's a lot of other doubts swirling around at this point. You figure, you know, at the peak, Jesus had massive crowds following him, right? And it looked like there was a massive movement getting rolling here, right? And now, the crowds are gone. Judas is dead in an an apparent suicide, and apparently he was a wolf. And now Jesus is leaving. Like, is it so surprising that these guys would be feeling a little shaky right now and uncertain? The whole project feels uncertain, Jesus is back, that's great, but it's also kind of mysterious, and he keeps like vanishing on us and stuff, you know, it's like he appears and disappears, like I don't know what's going on, and here we are in Galilee, miles from Jerusalem, and it all kind of feels like a dream, and Rome is still in power, the Jews have rejected Jesus, and our fellowship has been broken, and nobody knows what we're supposed to do now, and when you think of the apostles, these, these disciples as representing the church and God's people, right? I would describe their current status as uncertain. It's like when you see uh, uh, injury rosters in sports, right? You know, lower body injury, uncertain, right? They've been on an emotional roller coaster, and I, I'm sure they feel almost numb, and I bet they feel demoralized and confused and a little bit scared. This is a wounded group of men. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure there's some joy and excitement in here too, right? Because Jesus is here, right? But even the joy of that is mixed with shame. Because you have to remember that none of these guys exactly acquitted themselves very well in Jerusalem a couple weeks ago. I mean, Peter especially with that silly ear attack and then denying Jesus three times. But all of them ran away from Jesus in Gethsemane. Long story short, I, I look at this crew and I think to myself, what exactly do these 11 have to offer? I mean, let's be honest, they were never very promising recruits to begin with. And, uh, and now, they're coming off a string of serious losses and failures. They look about as promising as the Phillies did back in September. No wonder some doubted. Some still doubt the Phillies. Joe's like, you know, losing sleep here. Now, I'm not a betting man, especially around Pat Hansel. But if I were a betting man, 
And so damaged is their psyche that they can't even really accept the good news of the resurrection. They look at Jesus and they smile, but inside they kind of half suspect that it's like an illusion or something. Like maybe I'm dreaming and maybe it's all a lie and I don't want to get fooled again. I don't want to get my hopes up. This team is a picture of brokenness and fear and inadequacy, and in spite of everything they have seen and done in the last three years, their faith is weak. How do you build a church with a demoralized group like that? Circumstances were tough at the time, but they're tough today too, right? I was at a conference this past week. Kenny and Patrick were with me too, and we were talking about apologetics and preaching and and talked a lot about doing apologetics from the pulpit in, in a post-Christian world. What does that look like? I came home with a lot of what I'll call concerns on my mind. Because to hear these gentlemen tell, we are living in an increasingly troubled age, spiritually speaking, and we already kind of know that, right? We talk about that frequently enough. But the discouraging thing is that this post-Christian, increasingly anti-Christian culture is attacking people within the church Uh, Marriage is under attack. Faith is under attack. Our children are under attack. Um, We have an enemy who's very active. And we were repeatedly warned by these men who were on the front lines in their various ministries that, that things that were once unthinkable pastoral situations are coming our way. And they warned us to be ready for it. Uh, One of these gentlemen said he's receiving emails every week at this point from people who have undergone surgery to look like the opposite sex and have done permanent damage to the body that God gave them that is now irreversible and who now feel regret and are asking him, what can I do? What do I do now? I have a pastor friend who told me recently that he thinks in this age our role is becoming less focused on winning the culture wars. That ship has already sailed. Instead, we are standing at the door waiting for people to crash and burn and eventually come back to church just so that we can bind up their wounds and try to help them move on when they finally despair enough and come to an end of themselves. That we are essentially becoming a triage unit for a collapsing society. I think he's right. And I think he accurately describes what the church must do to be faithful in this age. But I'll be honest, it doesn't really sound very exciting. It sounds depressing and hard and painful. And when I start thinking that way, I sometimes wonder if the church today, and if LVPC in particular, has what it takes to face these challenges. Do I have what it takes to face these challenges? And again, I ask, if any of us were put in charge of building the capital C church in Allentown here, would you look around this room and be like, oh, yeah, I can totally work with this. This is just a dream team waiting to happen. And please don't feel insulted, because I can tell you right now, I'm not the pastor I would choose to lead this charge either. (laughs) 
But that's kind of the point. I think we're probably a more promising bunch and a more promising institution than the disciples in this scene. Bear in mind, Pentecost hasn't happened yet, folks, right? This is still the same dopey, lovable Peter we've been following all along, right? And James and John, whose mother tried to get Jesus to promise them the best seats in heaven, like this kind of nonsense. Thomas, the most famous of doubters, is in the group. Nathaniel, the skeptic. Simon, the zealot and political revolutionary who won't stop talking about an armed revolution. This is not only a motley crew, it's a crew of proven failures. They've been licking their wounds for weeks. But even in their weak state, the disciples still know some things. And they know what Jesus has been doing these last three years. It's it's not an illusion, right? They have seen his power at work. They have heard his wonderful words, what Peter called the words of life. They know that Jesus died, but they also know that he showed up again. And, you know, Matthew doesn't record all of the meetings that happened in Jerusalem before this, but we know from the other accounts that they've all seen him alive before this point at some point, right? And so they know that something is happening. What they don't know is what it all means or what happens next or what their role is in it, if there is one. The official word on the street, as Matthew records in the previous section, is that Jesus is still dead, but the body was stolen by them. So on top of all this, they also know that they're all wanted men, which would add to a general sense of malaise and lack of morale. But the most important thing I want us to see is not what they know or how they feel right now. What I want you to see is what they do. They show up and they worship. They obey Jesus' command to meet him here in Galilee. In Matthew's telling, this command was originally given to the women. Jesus told them, said, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary pass this on, and they obey. And on faith, uh, they go all the way from Jerusalem, where they last saw Jesus, and where you would think they would expect to see him again. They go all the way to Galilee on the women's say-so. And once they get there, they climb a specific mountain where Jesus told them to go. We can't prove it. It could very well be the same mountain where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. They would remember it well as the place where the things really got started. And they get to the top, and they see Jesus in the flesh, and they fall on their knees and worship. And this shows one thing very clearly. They know who Jesus is now. The mystery has been revealed. The riddle has been solved. Maybe they never saw it clearly before, but now they get it. They may have doubts, but they all bow down. If Jesus is here... If he is alive, then he is God, and we must worship. And Jesus doesn't stop them. What does this scene tell us about Jesus and his kingdom? It tells us that he does not choose his team based on outward appearances. Jesus chooses his friends, and while they may not be an impressive bunch, he calls them brothers. When Jesus is assembling a dream team, he doesn't choose according to man's wisdom. 
When Jesus calls a secret meeting that's going to change the course of history, he does not bring in the best and brightest. He assembles the failures, the weak need, and the cowards. And he hands the job to them. Why? Because his power is made perfect in weakness. He isn't delegating the job to the group because he's the one who's going to make it happen. Not them. And because the power comes from him, even doubtful disciples can be used. Doubt is not an excuse for disobedience, but neither is it a disqualifier for service. You don't have to wait for all your doubts to be answered and settled before you obey. Absolute certainty is not a prerequisite for worship. Nor will it keep Jesus from using you. And what does this mean for us at LVP? It means that we're as ready as we need to be for Jesus to use us here in Allentown. That's what that means. It means that we don't need to fear the world around us. Either we believe that Jesus is building his church or we don't. If he is building it, then nothing's going to stop him. We've inherited this commission from the apostles. We don't have to be the best and the brightest or the most charismatic or the coolest or even have the strongest of faiths. We don't even have to be doubt-free. We just have to obey. Show up and worship and just see how Jesus will use us. That's how he is building his kingdom. That is how he has always built his kingdom, whether in Judea or in the Lehigh Valley. That's the power of the gospel. And what a cool thing to be a part of. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for sending him. Lord, we thank you for calling us to be his disciples, Lord. We're not always very good at it. But we thank you that you love us that you chose us, Lord. We thank you that Jesus picks his friends and for some reason he picked us in spite of ourselves. Lord, we thank you that he uses broken, weak, cowardly, messed up people and turns them around, calls them his brothers and uses them to build his kingdom. Lord, we want to be a part of that. Lord, use us and be glorified in this city, in this church, and well beyond. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.